Welcome to New Chip Accelerate, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the New Chip Accelerator. From investing to building a company culture, this podcast strives to shine a light on the many unknowns that entrepreneurs face on a daily basis. Through talks with key personalities, Accelerate will teach you how to approach your investors, companies, customers, and roles with a fresh perspective. We have a very special episode for you today, the last episode of 2020. Today, we have a keynote talk from New Chip's Q4 online demo day, where Accelerator Director Armando Vera Carvajal interviewed Bob Metcalf. Bob Metcalf was an internet pioneer, beginning 1970 at MIT, Harvard, Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, Stanford, and 3Com. He invented Ethernet at Xerox Park on May 22, 1973. Today, Ethernet is the internet's standard plumbing, if you will, and now adds, especially if you let Bob count Wi-Fi, billions of standard internet ports per year. Let's get right into it. Bob, thank you so much for for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Uh, Before we dive in, I'd love to share some details on your background to share some context with our global audience. Keep it Uh, short, though. (laughs) <laughs> I'll try. You, you have a very, very impressive bio, so I'll try to keep it short. But uh, Dr. Robert Metcalf, or Bob, is Professor of Innovation in the Texas Innovation Center, which he founded in 2011, and Murchison Fellow of Free Enterprise in the uh, Crockerell School of Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he is Professor of Entrepreneurship in UT Austin's Macomb School of Business. Um, in the Texas Innovation Center, he is the principal investigator um, of TexasGeo.org, which aims to solve energy once and for all, for all using startups to advance cheap, safe, clean, abundant, uh, ubiquitous, deep, closed-loop, uh, base-load geothermal energy. Um, Earth produces enough heat to power the human race 24-7 for billions of years, or until Sol or the sun goes supernova, whichever comes first. Um, more prominently, Bob was an internet pioneer, beginning 1970 at MIT, Harvard, uh, Xerox, Palo Alto Research Center, Stanford, and 3Com. Uh, Bob invented Ethernet at Xerox Park on May 22, 1973. Uh, today, Ethernet is the internet's standard plumbing and now adds, especially if you let Bob count Wi-Fi or wireless Ethernet, billions of standard internet ports per year. Um, Bob has won the Hopper, Bell, Marconi, Stibitz, and Shannon prizes. Very, very impressive. Uh, he is a life trustee emeritus of MIT and a member of the National Academy of Engineering. In 2005, Bob received the National Medal of Technology for his leadership in the invention, standardization, and commercialization of Ethernet. Um, Notably, Bob founded 3Com Corporation in Silicon Valley on June 4th, 1979, and he took the company public in 1984. Um, After all sorts of organic growth and M&A, 3Com revenue peaked at $5.7 billion in 1999. Uh, 3Com's market capitalization also peaked in 1999 at an inflation-adjusted $52 billion, of of which Bob didn't even get half. Uh, 3Com was acquired by HP in 2010 and is now part of that conglomerate. During the 1990s, um, Bob was also the CEO, publisher, and columnist at IDG InfoWorld Magazine. 
his column about the internet from the ether was for eight years read weekly by more than a million information technologists among IDG's 90 countries. Uh, during the 2000s, uh, Bob was a limited venture general and now emeritus partner at Polaris Partners in Boston. Wow, uh, what an impressive background, uh, Bob. It's, again, such a pleasure to have you here today and to also see you after meeting you several years back as a student of yours at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, to start this talk off, I want to jump right to the fact that you helped pioneer the internet. Uh, there's just no way the world would be where it is today without the advancements you helped bring forth. Um, as the father of the ethernet, also a world-renowned entrepreneur and also a widely acclaimed academic, did you ever imagine you would find yourself where you are today, back when you were starting your career as a student at Harvard and MIT? Well, the, the, um, it's been a long journey, you know, since uh, I started working on the internet project formally in 1970. So that's, how many years is that? That must be 50 years. Uh, and I'd like, uh, many of my colleagues uh, claim from time to time that they had a vision back then about how it was all going to play out. But I, I went to all those meetings. No one had any idea the internet would blossom to where it is today. It's been a succession of surprises, which, by the way, is, is uh, guidance for today. That is to expect surprises right. uh, and to surprise people with your innovations. Um, so uh, actually my work on, ARPA, on the Internet started even before I worked on the Internet. I mean, I, I was well educated. I went to MIT undergraduate and was well prepared to help build the Internet. And help build is the operative phrase there. Many, many people have worked on the internet over the last 50 years, and uh, we're, we're starting to fight over who invented it, you know. <laughs> that flares up now and then. But you built it, right? You, you're the one who, who did it. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, that's the right. Whole thing. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's really fascinating, as you said, you know, to take a step back and look at how far we we've come as a modern civilization. In hindsight, everything always makes perfect sense, but in the present moment, it can be quite challenging to connect the dots ahead. Um, back then- I was once I, in a meeting, excuse me for interrupting, I was once in a meeting where we were talking about Vince Cerf as the father of the internet, which is, yeah. I would credit him with that. And there was this guy in the room and he said, that's rubbish. <laughs> uh, Vince Cerf couldn't possibly have typed in all that information. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I imagine a lot, a lot, a lot of information kind of going back to the 1970s when, when you were pioneering this new ether technology as it was coined back then. Did you imagine that the future would be like it is today with an interconnected world of smartphones, online platforms, video streaming, uh, all running on the Internet? Well, Ethernet was not designed to carry voice or video, and in fact, we resisted it for a while. And the, the status quo, principally at Bell Labs, uh, told us that Ethernet could never carry a voice, of course, and we agreed with them, actually, because you know you needed 150 millisecond end-to-end -end delay, and Ethernet all had retransmissions and stuff that would interfere with it. So for the longest time, uh, it was thought that the Voice, video, uh, and data were the three main industries. Voice, mostly telephone, 
video, mostly television and data, the big computer companies, mostly IBM, it seemed that they would persist as three separate industries. And big surprise is they did not. Over time, they converged because it turned out that Ethernet could carry voice and it could carry video. In fact, today, uh, the internet is mostly video. I, I don't know what the number is, but it's like 80 or 90% video, thanks to Netflix and YouTube et al. Um, so there's a, a, that, count that as a huge surprise in the evolution of the internet. When we were building the first versions of the internet in the 70s, there was no World Wide Web. The World Wide Web wasn't invented until 1989. 89, which is not 70, and, uh, uh, and it really didn't even take off till Netscape went public in 94. So uh, now there is a miracle there. Uh, you, know, you may remember that the, internet, uh, the World Wide Web was basically three standards. Uh, URLs and uh, HTML and HTTP, three sort of mediocre standards that clicked. And they worked perfectly starting in 1989 on top of TCP, IP, and Ethernet, which had been invented in 73. Hmm. So look at the gap of time between 73 and 89. Um, so that's another surprise that the old, old plumbing it's hard to get rid of the old plumbing. We still have it today. Right, right. No, I mean, and, and it's playing such a big role in where we are today. Um, recently, the internet hit its 50th anniversary. Um, you talked a little bit about convergence. What kind of disruption and in innovation do you foresee over the next decade, let alone the next 50 years, resulting from the rapid pace of internet connectivity? Well, we've gone through a series of pretty awesome disruptions already. I mean, famously, journalism, for example, has no business model anymore. And so it's, it's, in a, it's a mess. Someone's going to have to figure that out. Um, uh, uh, so book sales have completely changed. I remember when people said, you'd never buy a book online. Going to the <laughs> bookstore is just so much fun. <laughs> well, not. <laughs> so there have been a series of disruptions. The three major industries have been converged. That's huge. Mm -hmm. But now we're entering a phase where the, uh, the impacts are going to be even bigger. And I, I, would, I generally list them as three, okay. education, energy, um, and healthcare, which are all much bigger than telecom. And uh, you can almost feel it starting already. COVID was a big accelerator on education. I mean, the, the, uh, we academics have been dragging our feet for a long time about using online education. And now suddenly everybody is using online. It's, it became possible overnight. How could that be? Just overnight. So MIT and uh, Texas and others are uh, all, if not, well, maybe most of the classes are now all online suddenly. And we're learning a lot about how to do that better and better and better. Um, so that's the beginning of, uh, no, the acceleration of internet learning taking over from bricks and mortar education. Mm -hmm. And so now we just won't go K-12, bachelor's, master's, PhD. We're now going to be lifelong learning. Right. I think degrees will fade away and we'll have various. I recently uh, ordered my college transcript from MIT. So I have a piece <laughs> of paper that shows all the courses I took. Oh, wow. The grades I got. 
And so you could imagine the modern version of that, where you show your employer, you know, what you know, based on, you know, of course, you won't say I have a degree from the University of Texas at Austin. You won't say that because that won't mean as much. Uh, more and more, it'll be, well, what did you study? What do you know? What can you do? Uh, so that, that, so that's a big trend. And then there's energy. And energy is, uh, uh, we're going to solve it. Uh, we're going to solve energy in the next 50 years the way we solved information in the last 50 years. That is the, I call it the internet, the energy network. Mm-hmm. So the internet's beginning to emerge and, uh, and it has similarities to the internet. I mean, for example, at the beginning of the internet, there was no storage in the internet. As I mentioned earlier, you had to send the telephone call through at 150 milliseconds period. Uh, but then we introduced storage servers and terabytes on your cell phone and so on. And the internet is basically interconnected storage with some processing. Well, the energy network storage is beginning to emerge as a uh, prominent uh, factor in the evolution of energy. We have intermittent supplies of energy from uh, solar and wind, for example, and we have intermittent demand uh, for energy uh, as a function of season and daylight. So storage moderates the randomness on both ends of that that network. So the the big three, education, energy and then healthcare healthcare, healthcare is um, is a, a horrible mess right. and the uh, uh, getting it, everybody interconnected giving giving people their own information uh, and then using the network to saw, uh, cure diseases you're seeing it go on right now where the, the the reach of the network allows you to learn more about diseases uh, very quickly right and I mean, industry is very much in need, especially here in our country. Um, you mentioned those three different industries, which I absolutely agree will be key to, to the next 50 years. Um, but in terms of some of the more fundamental drivers for technological convergence, I know you mentioned storage. Are there any other sort of underlying drivers today that will really change the game? Well, the, the uh, march of... You know, Ethernet is about to go to 800 gigabits per second. Mm-hmm. It started out as 2.94 megabits per second in 1973. And now it's approaching 800 gigabits per second. And that continued march is a driver, since you asked about drivers. And uh, build it and they will come. We introduce faster networks and new applications arise that take advantage of the better reach, lower cost, higher speeds of the core network. So that's, that's driving, driving. Moore's law uh, is driving, and it's, it's not slowing down. Uh, my, my theory is that the, dri- the principal driver is connectivity. That is, uh, connectivity is itself a thing. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we need to study it more carefully. Uh, and I pose a paradox uh, I call it the transistor neuron paradox. Transistors are 10 to the 11th times faster than neurons. Mm. And if not 10 to the 11th, maybe it's only 10 to the 10th. Faster <laughs> than neurons. It's still uh, switching times. Um, so the neuron is just a very much more capable node than a pitiful evolutionary neuron 
However, neurons can make brains and transistors can't. Transistors don't even come close to making brains. And what's the difference? The difference is connectivity. The, you know, billions of years of evolution have caused the neuron to figure out how to get connected to other neurons and to the other parts of the body. Whereas our transistors, we don't have connectivity figured out. So I think one of the, uh, another driver will be us figuring out connectivity and thereby increasing the capacity of our network systems. Yeah, and, and also fueling uh, the, the depth of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, and how that also helps drive it further with the connectivity and the storage. Um, you, you mentioned something very interesting a moment ago, Moore's Law. Um, there's also a famous law named after you, uh, Metcalfe's Law. And it, it's a well-known axiom that explains how the value of networks increase as the numbers, the number of connected users grow. What exactly does Metcalfe's law, your law, truly mean to you in terms of the big picture for technology? First of all, I didn't call it Metcalfe's law, but <laughs> it first appeared as a 35 millimeter slide in a sales pitch that I distributed to my sales force in 1982-ish. It became Metcalf's Law in a book called Telecosm by George Gilder in 1995. But ever since then, I've been defending it to the hilt. <laughs> Metcalf's Law basically says it's good to connect things together. Mm-hmm. And then it attempts to quantify that by saying uh, the goodness, the value grows as the square of interconnected things. And for the longest time, no one bothered to um, test <laughs> my law unlike Moore's law, which has been numerically correct since 1965. So the, but then I, a few years ago, I checked it. I managed to fit the first 10 years of Facebook's growth, you know, its revenues as a surrogate for value and its monthly average users as a surrogate for connected users. And bingo, it fits Metcalf's law and a few other papers. Anyway, it's good to connect things together and it's bad to disconnect them. So occasionally you hear about the uh, subdivisions of the internet and that's not good news because that will reduce the value for everyone. Yeah. No, and that makes perfect sense. Um, Do you think that only applies to just technology or can that uh, method in theory be applied to connectivity in general, like real physical communities? In general, I mean, it, it also recurses. You can think of Facebook as one big network and, and, and observe value emanating from its complexity. But then the individual Facebook groups, they're also, uh, there's evidence, they also grow as the, the value of them grows as the number of participants in them, roughly as the square. Right. Um, so no, it, apply, it, it seems to apply... Um, in many, but it, it's not important whether it's exactly the square or not. And there's a gazillion grad students who are arguing whether it's n squared or n to the 2.4, 2. <laughs> 2.2, well, whatever. Uh, it's just good to connect things. And that was the whole point of this 35 millimeter slide in 1982. Was con- I had to convince people to buy more of our products. And uh, I argued that their networks were not as useful as they had hoped because they weren't big enough. And the remedy for that was to buy more of our products, which they did. (laughs) And it worked. It absolutely worked. Um, 
kind of going on that same vein, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about 3Com Corporation, which you founded. Um, provider of internet hardware, software, including the first commercial implementation of TCP, IP, and first Ethernet for PCs. Um, I, I mentioned when I introduced you that, you know, you IPO in 1984, you hit nearly $6 billion in revenue in 1999, and then you merged with HP. Uh, tell us a little bit about the journey that you experienced all the way from, from launch to, to exit acquisition. Well, you could put in your, I could put in my resume that I worked from 3Com from 1979 through 1990, but I re really had 20 different jobs in that period of time. I mean, that was the best part of it. I mean, I was the, the sole employee for six months, and that was lonely. And then we were a consulting company for a while, and we grew to 10 people, and that was a different kind of thing. There were other people to deal with. And then we started making products. And we raise outside venture capital. And while this is happening, the company's growing and everything's changing. So we reorganized. In the beginning, we organized every six months. And then as we got bigger, we reorganized every month. We switched from a functional organization to a, to a um, subdivision or organization. And we kept going back and forth. And the company changed. I got to be uh, uh, chief executive for a while, president for a while, chairman for eight years. Then VP um, uh, sales and marketing for two years. That was the best time uh, of my life right there. And then I, you know, I became a division software division manager and then the division manager for workstations. We built a workstation and I became a division manager for all hardware. Uh, then I became VP of corporate marketing. That was my last title there before I re uh, retired out. So, uh, Retired is not the right word, before I left in the 1990. So uh, a great part of having a company you've uh, started grow is you get to play many, many uh, different roles and learn a lot while you're going along. Uh, one of my joke, my standard jokes, which you may have heard, <laughs> is that I really enjoy working for huge companies that I founded. <laughs> <laughs> who, who doesn't, right? Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, I think it's just so fascinating to see, especially your trajectory, right? How you went from being a solo founder for six months, a long time when you're doing it all alone, and then gradually growing the, the, the team and then effectively delegating it all and taking different, I would say, perhaps more minor roles as you let others take on uh, leadership of the company, what was sort of like your thought process in delegating uh, as, as the company grew over time? Well, a, a key idea is, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if you're going to get this. Have you ever driven a car that has a clutch? Yeah. 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 Standard. It has first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth gears, and it has RPMs and MPHs. Yeah. So uh, take that as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Uh, as you grow your company, your company grows faster than the people. Mm -hmm. Unlike a big company where the people grow faster than the company, big important distinction. Right. You have to be sure that people in their jobs are uh, not redlining. Mm -hmm. In other words, as the company grows, a lot of some people uh, don't have the skills or experience or temperament to hold the big version of their job. And that's the equivalent of redlining your engine time to shift gears. And of course, shift gears is putting a different person in. 
Now, sometimes when you do that, the person you've replaced leaves the company in a huff. And sometimes they just take some other job that's better suited uh, uh, to them. My favorite example, uh, you used the word earlier of, uh, what was it? Did you say demoting less important jobs? You know, we had a one quarter, we desperately needed sales. We didn't have any. So they made me head of sales and marketing. Right. And the first thing I do is I recruited a guy named Dave, Dave DePew, who was a production engineer. But his dad had been a salesman. Yeah. And he was single and he could move anywhere tomorrow. So I made him head of Eastern East Coast sales, this production engineer. So here's Dave. He the next day he flies there, gets an apartment, sets up shop, starts selling. Uh, and by the way, it succeeded. He succeeded. He succeeded so much that his next assignment was to be the head of Northeast regional sales, which you may recognize as half of what he had before. Right. Now, was he demoted? No. Mm -hmm. The territory he had, even though it was geographically smaller than what he had before, was much bigger than the one he had taken over. His, we were growing 300% a year. So even though from the top, it looked like he was being demoted, from the bottom, he was enjoying the growth of the company and being promoted and succeeding step by step, which is very unusual, right. very unusual uh, for engineers to make good salespeople. And um, he did. And so did I, by the way, I made the same transition, although at a different, different time from uh, engineer to salesperson. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's fascinating to see. And I, I'm wondering, like, has this type of trajectory changed or do the fundamentals still apply today to most other tech startups? I, yeah, I don't think I you have to be careful with taking advice from people like me because we learned we learned there then and this is here now and here now is not necessarily the same as there then. But uh, I think I didn't this idea of gear shifting as a metaphor for people management in a rapidly growing company. You must be prepared. You must detect when people have redlined. Uh, it's very complicated to decide if they have. Like if a sales territory unperforms, was it because the salesman wasn't any good or his quota or her quota was too high? Well, you have to decide that. That's a judgment call. There's no book you can read about that. Uh, and so is that person redlining or not? Do they just need better tools or different shaped territory or what do they need? Um, so that's the process of deciding whether someone has redlined. If they have redlined, you got to get them out of there because they'll hold your whole company back. Right. Right. I agree. And, and it's a crucial uh, perspective to have in a startup. Um, Bob, you, you've also served as a GP at Polaris Venture Partners. Um, throughout that time, I'm sure you looked at many deals um, and you're also an investor today. What's the, the single most important factor that you seek when backing an entrepreneur uh, with your investment? In the history of venture capital firms, there's a thing called distributions. Mm -hmm. You get your money back. It's actually the hardest thing to do. You know, you raise the money as a VC and then you give it out to the startups and then you get it back. Right. Uh, getting it back is the hardest part. In any case, I'm in the distribution phase of venture capital. I, I get it. <laughs> 
I get regular checks from Polaris, not no irregular checks from Polaris as we liquid, liquidate investors that were made, investments that were made five, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but the question you ask is a standard question of venture capitalists. What do you look at the people, the technology or the market? And there are three kinds of venture capitalists. <laughs> there are those who focus on people, those who focus on technology, and those who focus on markets. The good ones, of course, uh, consider all three uh, in, with different weights on them. And um, my preference, although I'm not sure it was a strength, was on I, I focused on the technologies, uh, as, assuming we could shift gears if we needed to, that is, replace the people. I'm one of those VCs that entrepreneurs hate because I'm not founder friendly. E even though I was a founder myself, or maybe because I was a founder myself, I, I don't think founder friendly is necessarily a good thing if you're trying to. Uh, one of the ways that I uh, uh, attracted investors is I told them the truth which is that it was more important to me that my company be successful than that I run it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was open to and very early attracted what we call in the Valley adult supervision. Mm -hmm. Bill Krause is his name. And uh, a lot of founders don't like the idea of um, adult supervision. Uh, but they're wrong to do so. So, for example, the most one of the most famous CEOs of all time, Steve Jobs, he founded Apple in '73. He became CEO in '93. It took him 20 years between founder and CEO. He understood from day one the importance of adult supervision. If you look at the detailed history of Apple, you can see he had Markle at the beginning, and then Scotty, and then uh, famously John uh, Scully, and so on. He, he, he brought in uh, his adult supervision, and it's, uh, uh, that's an important technique. So I had my adult supervision, Bill Krause. When Bill joined the company, there were 12 of us. We were a little nervous about it, how he was going to spoil everything, because he, he, he insisted that we plan things, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, when Bill got kicked upstairs, we kicked him upstairs to chairman later company went from 12 people to 12,000 people under his management. So, you know, he succeeded wildly, actually. Big change. Yeah, and, and I think it's so true. Um, the adult supervision part, I think uh, we see this a lot, right? We work with hundreds of different startups in, in each of Accelerator, and most of them understand, right, that they should not be the smartest person in the room, that they, there's going to come a point where they have to step aside and somebody else who does have the chops and the experience to take that company from small to, to big, to Titan, um, will require them to move, move to the side. And I think it's, it's just so valuable that you also share that, that perspective. Um, and by the way, this is a highly statistical matter and there are exceptions to every rule. Right. One of my favorite exceptions is a good man named Ken Olson, who founded a company called Digital Equipment Corporation, hmm. DEC which yeah. is at one time the second largest computer company in the world. And he made it to the cover of Fortune magazine as entrepreneur of the century. Wow. That was the day that his board of directors should have retired him. Mm -hmm. But he had mistakenly filled the board of directors full of his friends. And yeah. he stayed CEO too long. And that's why you've never heard of Deck Because mm -hmm. it went under. I mean, it got sold for a song.
So it's really sad. Ken Olson was the entrepreneur of the century, and then he just stayed on just a little too long past his past his um, he redlined, and mm-hmm. no, and no one shifted gears, and the company went away. It, and it's interesting you mentioned that because the way that I tend to hear it on the ground with entrepreneurs, it's this duality, right? You're either a visionary or you're an operator. Um, more often than not, it feels like a lot of the entrepreneurs, the founders are the visionaries. They have the vision. Sometimes they'll have the operational know-how. But as you mentioned, there comes a point where you, you stay on a little too long and somebody else has to come in and fulfill that role. Um, what are well, your if, you're running, if you're running your company and your board members start referring to you as a visionary, yeah. uh, that means they don't want you to run the company. So very, you can expect very shortly to not be running your company because mm-hmm. visionaries don't make good operators. Right. Uh, right. So, uh, so beware. If you want to run your company, don't, don't get pigeonholed as a visionary. As a and visionary. for Pete's sake, never tell anybody, and especially members of the press, what your vision is. Do not refer to your vision as your vision. Uh-huh. Let me call it a vision, but don't you call it a vision. It's, it's, that's way too, what is it? Help me. What is that? When someone says, well, my vision <laughs> is, no, no, don't, oh, don't tell me you have a vision. Right. Oh, well. No, yeah. And, and I think that that really ties in to the whole notion and concept that really comes down to ego, right? Because a lot of the founders who stay on as CEOs for too long, it's about me, 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 right? Like, this is my baby. I created this. I have the vision for it. And only I can really take it to success. But that tends to be the, the pitfall, slippery slope for a lot of founders. And they kind of, like Deck, stay stuck, right? And just that entrepreneur of the century, and they don't actually advance the company to greatness. Well, ego is a two-sided coin. It is the, the nuclear energy that drives things. It is also the road to ruin. So Right. Somehow keeping your, yeah, one of uh, the Silicon Valley um, VCs uh, who I visited in preparing to start my company told me there were, as a general rule, there were three things that caused companies to fail. Yeah. And uh, one of them was a lack of focus. I want to do too much. One of them was uh, a lack of capital, which they were prepared to fix by investing maybe. But the third one, and they all mentioned it, was the ego of the founder. That is the ego of the founder can be limiting. It's also driving. So once again, it's a two-sided thing. The ego is a driving thing, but it can be a a fatal flaw eventually. Right, right. And there needs to be that fine balance. Um, On a somewhat similar vein, you know, you coming from the, the innovation world, what is the power of a crazy idea? Um, and why would why do we need more crazy ideas today now more than ever? Let me change your question just slightly. Why would um, somebody buy products from a startup? Why why would they take the risk? Why would they do that? I know the answer because I've seen it. I was out selling Ethernet to bankers and retailers. And, and, at a time when personal computers did not exist and PC uh, Ethernet was never heard of. But I watched, and then later when I became a publisher of uh, InfoWorld, they were my readers. These are 
the technical people willing to go out onto the bleeding edge? Why do they risk it? Why do they innovate? Yeah, why do they innovate? Why do they risk buying junk from startups instead of from IBM? Why do they do that? And the answer is they have competition. They want to beat their competition, and they think that you, they may think, you hope they think, that you, your, whatever you're selling is a tool that they can use to advance their careers. They can use to advance their companies vis-a-vis, uh, versus the uh, uh, competition. So it's competition, right. the answer to your question. It, it, uh, competition drives people out onto the bleeding edge of technology. Yeah. It's that fundamental driver that has made us where we are today. And I would even say uh, the creation of the internet, ethernet, it was that drive to get that technological edge that is moving us forward. And you can see it with space, you can see it with lots of different industries and ideas that were perhaps one at some point in time considered absolutely crazy and unimaginable and are now a matter of fact today here on earth. Going back to the big version of your question though, there's this wonderful chart that I've included in my um, connectivity briefing that shows the number of people connected by the internet, which is an exponential that ramps sharply starting in 1994 with the advent of the web. Uh, And there's another chart of the number of people who are uh, in deep poverty. Mm -hmm. And that number grows slowly with the population uh, for decades. And the internet arrives and the number of people living in extreme poverty nosedives, it goes down. So even though we may have a billion people in extreme poverty, we used to have 2 billion and 3 billion. So that's another reason to innovate is uh, in the particular innovation we're talking about now is connecting people together. Uh, You do it to make human lives better so that people won't have to live in extreme poverty. And, and the, now, there are people who like to point out to me that correlation and causality are not the same thing. And just because this plunge in, in uh, extreme poverty came after the rapid growth of the internet and the World Wide Web doesn't mean it caused it, but I think it did cause it. Mm-hmm. And uh, correlation is a hint about causality. So, it, right. yeah, it isn't causality, but very often... Uh, correlation leads to causality. And I, I think so. One of the reasons we built the internet and increased human connectivity was so that we could all live better lives. Right. Right. Uh, competition's good. Right. And, uh, so the secret to progress, since you asked, is uh, uh, FOCACA, F O C A C A, freedom of choice among competing alternatives. Competition. Freedom of choice among competing alternatives is uh, the way to maximize progress. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a very important perspective, I think. And, uh, you know, this is it's very it's a trending topic right now everywhere, especially uh, this year um, with with the rise of COVID-19 and the impact it's had on many people. Um, historically, government has played a pretty major role in fostering economic growth and both science and technology. Do you think that today as a nation here in the U.S., we're on track to continue the development of the next generation of technological research and innovation, or are we falling behind? What's happened is the, is good, what's happened is, is good news. 
And the good news is that our competitors in the world are catching up to us, if not beating us in some areas. So uh, we are still not bad. I mean, the, the operation of the National Science Foundation, the National Association of Venture Capitalists, the, all the instruments of uh, innovation and economic growth, to, as far as I can see, are still functioning. The good news is that our competitors are doing better than they used to. So now China has as many uh, universities, uh, as, has as many MITs as we do, uh, more MITs than we do. And that's good because innovation uh, uh, leads to peace and prosperity. So the more innovation there is around the world, we can expect the more peace and prosperity, I think. So it's, it's not that we're falling behind, it's that they're catching up and, and, and as I mentioned, in some cases, uh, surpassing us. Bob, in, you know, to, to close this talk out, um, in 2005, you received the U.S. National Medal of Technology uh, for Leadership in the Invention, Standardization, and Commercialization of Ethernet. Um, this is obviously an incredibly prestigious award offered to, to the few creators behind some of the most pivotal technologies today. Um, as you look ahead into the future of technology, what words of inspiration might you share with the next generation of technological pioneers and innovators? I do want to insert a wonderful thing that happened as a result of that medal in 2005. It came soon enough that my parents could go to the White House with me to receive that medal and to go to the parties that surrounded uh, the various people who got medals that day. My parents never went to college. They, they, they uh, were the children of immigrants. They, were, they believed in the American dream. And here they were. I have this picture of my mom wearing the National Medal of Technology. And I have figured out, by the way, that my principal motive, even though my parents are gone, is to please them. And to have my mom at the White House wearing this medal was you know, the culmination of the American dream. So, I, so I'm a big proponent of the American dream. And going back to your question, would advise people to believe in it, uh, uh, to believe in freedom. So it's a, it's a positive loop. Um, freedom and prosperity. Freedom leads to prosperity, and prosperity leads to freedom. And innovation is the is the connection that drives them. So we, uh, so it's a good thing to be an innovator. So, I mean, it's a high calling. I love it. That was uh, brilliantly said. And, and I absolutely agree with uh, the thoughts you shared about being in the White House with your parents and that being the, the driving motivation. One, which I also share, right? It's being an immigrant here in America. Like when people give everything to come to this land of freedom and opportunity, like you want to do everything to, to please them and make their sacrifice worthwhile. So it's so good to hear that coming from you as well, Bob. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your time, your insights, perspectives. Uh, this has been very profound for me and for the global audience. And thank you to everybody else who tuned into this talk, investors, entrepreneurs from around the world. Um, we hope that you found this talk uh, very, very valuable. Um, Bob, thank you once again, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you for tuning into this episode of New Chip Accelerate. If you'd like to hear more of this special keynote talk, you can find the full video recording of this talk on the New Chip YouTube channel. 
If you are interested in learning more about how New Chip enables startup founders to build their business, meet other CEOs, and raise their rounds, all while retaining 100% ownership of their companies, check us out at newchip.com. We will see you soon next year with the next episode of New Chip Accelerate.